Dear friends, our text this morning or this evening or whatever time it is as you watch this, our text as we hear from the living God in his word is once again Hebrews chapter 8 verses 7 to 13. Thank you for joining us again as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews at Christ the King. I'd ask that at home you would keep your Bibles open to the passage that was read a moment ago by Echo, that you might follow along as we proceed. Last week, if you were with us, you know we began our study of the longest quotation of the scriptures to be found in this written sermon. The quotation of Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, that appears here in Hebrews 8, verses 8 to 12. And it's not hard, whether you were with us last week or not, to see that the subject of the longest scriptural quotation in Hebrews, that from Jeremiah 31, the subject of that quote is the new covenant. The pastor says that's the point in verse 13 of our passage. In his own words following the quote, the pastor says in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. It's the new covenant that now takes center stage in Hebrews. Or to keep with the imagery we used last week, this is the point of confluence. We've come now to the mighty river flowing in the heart of this book. All the streams and the tributaries of thought in Hebrews that we reviewed last week come together now to give us what I called the gospel according to Hebrews. And this was how we put it last Sunday, if you recall. The Son of God, as Jesus the Messiah became a high priest forever in order to make the new covenant a reality. It's the gospel according to Hebrews. And we saw that this was the point already back in Hebrews 7, verses 21 and 22, where the pastor says, this one, Jesus, was made a high priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And then here's verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Or in other words, dear friends, that's the whole point. Chapter 8, verse 6 says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. And so, brothers and sisters, what is it? What is this better covenant Jesus mediates in order to fulfill the purposes of God? It is, as we began to see last week, what the scriptures refer to as the new covenant. So to explicate its meaning and significance, the pastor here cites at length the clearest and most important text in the Hebrew Bible regarding the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. 
And last week, we began to consider that text as it's quoted here in Hebrews 8. And to help us organize our thoughts somewhat, I suggested four headings under which we could move through this text. And we only got as far as the first one last week. We'll finish them up today. We'll review that first point in just a minute. But the first heading was the need for the new covenant in verses 8 and 9. Why was the new covenant necessary? That was the first point. Secondly, then, in about the first two-thirds of verse 10, verse 10a and b, we will consider the nature of the new covenant. What does the new covenant do or change exactly? That's the second point. And then thirdly, in the, in the last part of verse 10, through verse 11, we'll consider the never-ending result of the new covenant. What does the new covenant accomplish? That's the third point. And then finally, fourthly, Lord willing, we'll talk about the new provision of the new covenant that makes the entire thing possible. What exactly is required to bring about the new covenant? You can guess whatever that is. That's what Jesus has done. Because this is the covenant he mediates. He's the one who brings it about, which is precisely what Hebrews chapters 9 and most of 10 will focus on. The Son of God, as Jesus the Messiah, became a high priest forever in order to make the new covenant a reality. Only now to that summary of the gospel according to Hebrews, let me add one more phrase. Because I think we should stress today that Jesus did this to make the new covenant a reality in our lives, brothers and sisters. What we're talking about today from Jeremiah isn't obscure theological speculation. The point here today has to hit a lot closer to home than that. Because Either the new covenant described in Hebrews 8 that Jesus Christ died to make a reality that either is a reality in our lives or it isn't. There is no category called old covenant Christian, dear friends. Verse 13 says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so it has, you see. The old covenant continues only as a type of the new. Such was its purpose. The pastor in verse 13 speaks from the prophet Jeremiah's point of view. As soon as God promised a new covenant... The old was ready to vanish away, but now the new has come. The question for us is, is this new covenant a reality in our lives? Or to put it the way our text does, do you know the Lord? That needs to be the question in the back of our minds as we consider this text now in more detail. Those of you who were here last week already know why the new covenant was needed. 
But let's review that briefly. The new covenant was needed because on the whole, the people of Israel didn't keep the old one. That's what we saw in verses 7 and 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, the pastor says. But there was such occasion. Why? Verse 8, for he, that is the Lord speaking through Jeremiah here, he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For, here's the reason, here's why we need a new covenant. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. In the Hebrew text of Jeremiah 31, verse 32, it says, It was my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The new covenant was needed because the people of Israel, on the whole, broke the old one. And not just at first, as we saw last week, when the people made the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, before Moses had even made it back down the mountain. Oh, they did break it there at the very beginning. But that wasn't the end of it. Over and over and over again, it would happen. Remember? It wasn't uniquely the problem of the wilderness generation in Exodus. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 21 and following again. Listen to these words spoken by the Lord through Jeremiah at least 800 years after the Exodus and after the establishment of the law. Here's the need for the new covenant. Jeremiah 7, verse 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. Don't forget that. There's the locus of the problem, the stubbornness of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. And now listen to Jeremiah 7, verse 25. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me, nor incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. The need for the new covenant is clear. Israel's endemic refusal 
to do God's will showed that what was needed was nothing less than a new beginning, a new covenant in which God's people would be decisively changed in their relationship to God because God himself would fundamentally address the hard-hearted rebellion of his people. So here we go. The second point from Jeremiah 31, as it's quoted here in Hebrews 8, is regarding the nature of the new covenant. The need is clear. Now we turn to the nature of the new covenant and we find it in the first two-thirds of verse 10. Because what needs to change, dear friends? In a covenant, you have two basic parties. In this case, you have God and his people. God doesn't need to change. The one who graciously delivered his people and took them by the hand isn't the problem here. What needs to change is the people. Only as the history of the old covenant reveals, for that to happen, the Lord needs to change their hard hearts and stiff necks. These verses from Jeremiah 31 look to a future in which Israel's then present state of rebellion and stubbornness will no longer determine her covenantal relationship with the Lord. So verse 10 shows us the nature of the new covenant. Let's read it. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. On their hearts. Which, as we've seen, are presently stubborn and evil and hard. The new covenant brings with it the greatest provision of God ever for his people. He will transform them internally. He will place his law within them. He will write it on their hearts. I will do it, he promises. All of it will be God's work. And of course, the point is, that it's the reversal of the present situation in Jeremiah's day. Because what's written on their hearts now? We don't have to guess. It's in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1. The Lord says in Jeremiah 17, verse 1, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It, sin, is engraved. On the tablet of their heart. Israel had been stubbornly rebellious from the Exodus onward. What could we be talking about here except a fundamental transformation of Israel's rebellious nature? And what will such transformation bring about? Clearly, her hardened disobedience will be replaced with an open obedience to God's covenant stipulations as declared in his law. It is his laws that he writes on our hearts, brothers and sisters. In contrast to the conflict that existed between God's commandments and the desires of Israel's heart under the Sinai covenant, under the new covenant, that fundamental conflict between God's law and our inward desire is gone. 
God himself will change the hearts of his people. The promise of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, spoken by Moses as the new generation was preparing to enter the promised land. Finally, that promise will become the reality for all God's people. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses said to them, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. We can't develop here now the concept of the heart in the scriptures. So you'll just have to trust me. The heart in the Bible means the place associated with the seat of one's emotions and volition or will. In other words, it's not just how we feel. That's how we tend to use the language of the heart nowadays. It's not that. It's not the opposite of our emotions, of course, but it's more than that. It's the union of our emotions with volition. It is what encompasses what we refer to as reason, the heart in biblical terms, includes everything that we ascribe to the head and the brain. Power of perception, reason, understanding, insight, consciousness, memory, knowledge, reflection, judgment, sense of direction, discernment, it all has to change. You see, That's the point. This is why the Bible's so clear in saying it's our actions that reveal the heart. Because the heart encompasses all of who we are, out of which we live our lives. The nature of the new covenant is the fundamental transformation of the heart. Brothers and sisters, what Israel cannot do for herself, God promises to do for her. The promise of the new covenant is the divine response to Israel's inability and failure to do as the Lord instructed them to do in Jeremiah 4, verse 4, to circumcise themselves to the Lord, to remove the foreskin of their hearts, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds, says the Lord. And you hear it there, don't you? The evil deeds for which the Lord will come against them in his wrath are inextricably linked to the condition of their hearts. But thanks be to God, the Lord looks at the hard hearts of his people and the inevitable judgment that will result, and the Lord says, no, this will not be the ultimate end for my people. I will make a new covenant with them. I will change their very hearts. The question now has to be, how will he do that? How will God make this new covenant with his people? How will God make a way for his people to once again be in his presence? What needs to happen for God to make the heart new? such that we respond in love and obedience, keeping the covenant instead of breaking it. 
We'll get there, but I'll give you one clue here now. Taken from another prophet. Because Jeremiah 31 verse 33, the verse that's quoted in Hebrews 8 verse 10, is a lot like Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 and 27. Ezekiel chapter 36 is another great New Covenant text, but there you find another piece that becomes crucially important. Listen, this is Ezekiel 36, verse 26. The Lord says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And here's the key, Ezekiel 36, verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice how the presence of the Spirit of God in his people in Ezekiel is parallel to God saying he will write his law on our hearts in Jeremiah. So how does God write his law on our hearts? By the Holy Spirit. God, now dwelling intimately with his people, the Lord says through Ezekiel, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And I say, please, God, cause me to do that. Please, God, remove my stony, rebellious heart. Give me the heart of flesh. Please, God, put your law within me. Write it on my heart as you put your spirit within me. Please, God, do it. I want that more than anything in the world. I love the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 119, verse 32. Here's the new covenant reality celebrated by the psalmist. Psalm 119, verse 32 I will run, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Please, God, may it be so in my life. And why? Why should we long for God to do this? It's because of the third point I want to make now from verses 10c and verse 11 of our passage in Hebrews 8. We want God to change our hearts because of the never-ending result of the new covenant. Look at the last part of verse 10, verse 10c. What is the result of this new covenant transformational reality in the lives of God's people? And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The consequence of the new covenant, unlike that of Sinai, will be the realization of the relationship between God and his people that was promised to Abraham 
and was initiated with Israel, summarized by the covenant formulary, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Do you recognize that phrase? That is the fundamental pledge that God makes with his people all through the Bible. It is what biblical scholars call the covenant formula. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That phrasing shows up at least 25 times in various forms in the scriptures. And it's present at all the high points. Why? Because it's the answer to the problem of the fall. When we were separated from the presence of God, it's the promise of the restoration of God's presence. So it's there in Genesis 17 in the covenant made with Abraham. It's there in God's promise to deliver his people from Egypt in Exodus chapter 6. It's there in the instructions to build the tabernacle in Exodus 29. It's there in the summaries of Deuteronomy chapters 4 and 29, among other places in that book. It's in Leviticus. It's there in the promises of the new covenant of Jeremiah, of Ezekiel. The apostle Paul picks up on it in Romans chapter 9. And then where does the whole Bible end in Revelation? You know it, with the loud voice from the throne saying in Revelation 21, verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. It's all the way through the Bible. And it's the same whether it's related to the patriarchs, the Exodus, Sinai, the new covenant, or the new heavens and the new earth. The same covenant relationship established with Abraham is called to remembrance and confirmed all through the scriptures. The foundation laid with Abraham in Genesis 17 is extended to the people of Israel in Exodus 6, and now in the new covenant it will be extended to the nations because the everlasting covenant that God makes with Abraham is what works its way out through all the scriptures. Genesis 17, verse 7, And I, the Lord, will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And here it is, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, quoting from Jeremiah 33, in which now it is the never-ending result of the new covenant God has promised, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 11 then unpacks part of what that new covenant reality entails. Look at verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. As a result of having God's law written on their hearts, the people of the new covenant will have no need to be taught to know the Lord, since they will all know him directly. Under the old covenant, it was possible to belong to the covenant community ethnically, but not spiritually. Under the new covenant, 
there will no longer be any distinction within the covenant community between those who know and do not know the Lord. Between those who do and do not have a transformed heart. At this juncture, if we had an extra 20 minutes, we could go to Romans chapter 9 and listen to Paul say that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. We could go to Romans 11 and listen to Paul talk about the remnant, the smaller subset of Israel all through her history, who, unlike the majority of the hard-hearted people, were spiritually circumcised and were not only part of Israel physically, but also had their hearts changed by the Lord. If we had the time, that's what we could do. But the point would be the same in the end. Now, under the new covenant, all those who are members of God's people know the Lord personally. Or, to use the common New Testament terminology, they have been born again by the Spirit. The people of the New Covenant, by definition, will have changed circumcised hearts, and as a result, the witness of the people of God will no longer be to one another's neighbor within the covenant community. Instead, it will be from the covenant community to the world. And so finally, the fourth and final point taken from verse 12 of Hebrews 8, what is it that makes the entire thing possible? What is the new provision of the new covenant? It's there in verse 12. For. The basis of all of this. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. Dear friends, how is it that God can pledge to be their God and they shall be my people? How is it that we can be in the presence of God forever? How is it that we can have a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, the hope of life with God in a place? The only possible way is if somehow... Our sins are forgiven. If somehow God himself rectifies our fallen condition by providing a means for removing the very thing that forced him to expel Adam and Eve from the garden and to send his people eventually into exile so many generations later in Jeremiah's day as they remained hard-hearted and stubborn in their sinful disobedience, the only possible way is if somehow God himself saves us by forgiving our sin and putting his spirit within us so that we will, as Ezekiel says, walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. The only possible way is to bring about the reality of the new covenant. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And so according to verse 12, the foundation of all of it is the fact that the new covenant will be based on God's forgiveness. 
so that God will remember their sin no more, the changed condition of God's people, their resultant obedience to the covenant, their renewed access to the presence of God by the Spirit, their consequent witness to the world around them are all based, are all based entirely on God's act of forgiveness as the foundational provision of the new covenant. And it's the focus of Hebrews 9 and 10. God had to provide somehow for the forgiveness of Israel's iniquity. And he still had to do it in Jeremiah's day because he hadn't done it yet. This isn't news to you, I realize. But it's the center of everything. Jeremiah didn't know this. The people of Israel didn't know this. Moses didn't know this. Abraham didn't know this. Adam and Eve didn't know this. But we know it. And the pastor writing Hebrews is pulling out all the stops to make this the center of his sermon, that the forgiveness that will be made possible in the new covenant was in the sovereign loving plan of God brought about by the life, death, and resurrection of the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God incarnate. Hebrews 10, verses 11 and following, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying in Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds the foundational provision of all Jeremiah was talking about. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Praise the Lord. When Christ died for our sins as the one true sacrifice, the veil of the temple that separated God's glory from his people split in two. When Christ rose from the dead, the power of sin over our lives broke. And when Christ ascended to the Father, the Spirit was poured out in our hearts that we might be those who live now as the new covenant people of God in Christ. In other words, God's people have been perfected for all time for he has perfected those who are being sanctified. It's the new covenant reality, and it's meant to be the reality 
in your life, dear friend. So is it? This passage sums up the essence of what it means to be a Christian. To know the Lord. The new covenant is true Christianity. God's laws are written on the minds and hearts of true Christians. Which means the Christian faith is fundamentally about transformation. It's about intrinsic motivation to walk with the Lord in our daily lives of faith. It is not about external conformity to whatever associations or whatever practices or whatever passions others may think define what being a Christian looks like. No. The new covenant works internally, not externally. And so I ask you, are you a new covenant Christian? Do you know the Lord? If you love me, Jesus says, in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15, if you love me, me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, Jesus says. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Dear friend, do you know the Lord? And if the honest answer to that question is no, then here's the starting point. Look unto Jesus. At the cross, God has made possible the forgiveness of your sins. On the night before he died, Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, say Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new provision of the new covenant is the cross of Jesus Christ. His blood purchased the fulfillment of these promises for us, dear friends, which is why today the new covenant reality can be yours to live. For as Peter instructed in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent, 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 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.